Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining the Therapeutics Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down and discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Ben Madrell, and I will be your host today for the ASHP Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. And with me today are Amber Lene Martirasov, Michelle Link Patterson, and Megan Adelman. Uh, the podcast today is the second part of our series that is titled An As Needed Update on Asthma Management. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, I encourage you to, to go back and listen to the concepts that we discussed in this part one podcast, where these concepts are going to be applied to the patient cases that we will be discussing today. Today, our panelists are ready to tackle these patient cases, and they're ready to give their insights and expertise on asthma management. So let's get started with patient case number one. So for our first case, we have an 18-year-old female that is diagnosed with asthma who hasn't been taking her inhalers in years, and recently she's been complaining of worsening respiratory symptoms. Uh, She states that she is symptomatic about three days of each week and is experiencing nighttime awakenings about three times per month. So Megan, what do you think would be an appropriate inhaler regimen for this patient? Ben, thanks so much for starting us off with a great case. This is a really traditional case that you're going to see both in the primary care and pulmonology where patients are coming in not really on anything and then all of a sudden there's symptoms. I have to say that Gina outlines this case quite well. There's a Uh, I'll verbally go through it, but for those that are probably very similar to me that like more of a paper process, on page 54 of the updated GINA guidelines, this this is outlined um, if you need to see it in print. So the question is, how often patients are having symptoms as well as are there any nighttime associations or waking from asthma-like symptoms? So we have about a three-pronged approach. The first one, and then I will shamelessly say that we are promoting our first one. If you haven't had the opportunity to to listen to our first podcast, that Ben outlined this beautifully in his first section as to how do we approach this. So our first option would be doing a inhale corticosteroid lava combination just as needed. Think about this in terms of patients that have really no symptoms at all or very minimal, which is not necessarily the case that we've presented here. Our next one would be going to a scheduled inhale corticosteroid plus some sort of as-needed medication. And again, this would be another one that patients are maybe having symptoms somewhat infrequently, maybe two times a month, not daily, maybe a little bit more, but no nighttime associations. Then the key thing that you brought up, though, is that the patient's having some sort of nighttime associations where I would argue that they fall into this third bucket. So we're having pretty frequent daytime associations almost on a daily basis, but then the nighttime. So they probably have a higher burden of disease warranting both a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid plus that LAPA combination in addition to our inhaled corticosteroid. And Ben, I'm going to promote again, you said this beautifully in our first session, that this really warrants what we consider smart therapy or our single maintenance and reliever therapy. In an ideal world, we would be using something that has that little bit quicker acting LAPA, something like what the guidelines say, Simbacort or Budesonide for form overall, so that they can get that component. So we'd be using that both as maintenance and PRN. Amber, I'm going to shoot to you. I have unfortunately not had a lot of success with this. Insurance is not covering this for me. So a lot of the times what we're still doing is we'll start something like a Simbacort or an Advair, an inhaled corticosteroid plus a lava, and still do the albuterol PRN. What have you seen in your practice? Yeah, Megan, I completely agree. We've had a really hard time getting this approved for patients. 
although the guidelines are very clear and the evidence is there, I don't think insurance companies have quite caught up to it. So we do similarly where we'll give them the control inhaler with an ICS LABA. It doesn't always end up being that Simbacort, you know, that ICS with Fomoterol combination, but we then will also give them the albuterol. I will say another point that I think is really important for this case that I really enjoy is that here's what I love about smart therapy. We give these patients medication, but give them the ability to actually titrate down their own medication. I find that a lot of patients tend to be a little bit addicted to their albuterol. When I do actually successfully get patients on smart therapy, I see them taking their Symbacor twice daily, but I don't see them frequently using it and they end up relying on it only when they're actually getting close to being in trouble. And then by doing that, it actually keeps them out of trouble, which I find very fascinating because if you look at the literature, overuse of albuterol actually has very severe negative outcomes. All right. Well, thank you guys for tackling on that case. I think you really touched on those key highlights of, you know, smart therapy is what the guidelines say, but in reality, in insurance limitations, that is not what happens all the time. And there are some workarounds, but obviously not the most ideal workarounds, but it's the best we can do with what we've got. All right, well, that'll segue us into our second case here where we have JT, who is a 28-year-old with worsening mild asthma, currently on our max smart therapy uh, with Simbacort. And she's having trouble affording her Simbacort inhaler since the copay card is no longer available. Uh, So Michelle, what else can we do in this patient's case? Thanks, Ben. So this actually kind of reminds me of the first case that we just talked about, right? So we want to get the patient on the Simbacort or the budesonide for Motorol because that's going to be our preferred option. So I see this a lot in clinical practice because of the high cost of inhalers. You know, the insurance formularies change all the time. And then we deal with the manufacturer copay card availability. So the first thing I notice is that since this patient is on smart therapy, she only has one inhaler, right? So she only has to pay one copay compared to like if we had our previous patient, maybe was on an ICS lava plus albuterol, that patient would have to pay two copays. So right there, we can save the patient a little bit of money by maintaining her on one inhaler. The next thing to see would be, okay, what type of insurance does she have? So does she have an insurance where we can try for a prior authorization? Does she have an insurance where we can do like a patient assistance program or do we not have any options at all? And then maybe could we switch her to a generic? So since there is a generic Simbaport available, we can look at our options with that. I will say that coverage is kind of spotty since a generic is fairly new. Some insurance plans will still prefer the branded medication but it's a little bit harder without the copay card being available. So when it comes to this patient, what I would say is we should try to keep them on the budesonide for motorol because the formoterol is going to be our quick acting reliever, but we want to make sure that we get the best cost option for the patient. Another last thing that I've tried for some patients with some success is requesting a tear exception. And basically what that means is reaching out to the insurance company saying, hey, this inhaler is a tier three, a patient can't afford it. Can we move it to a tier two so they can have the tier two copay and then it might be more affordable to the patient because this is really the best evidence-based option that we have. So what I'd like to kind of ask the panelists about is 
maybe some of these patients that aren't as clear cut as this 28 year old or the 18 year old that we are, uh, we've previously discussed. I want to know anybody on our panel, what are your thoughts on using smart therapy in children that are less than 12? Or let's say we have a patient who is pregnant and you have your providers coming to you to say, we need to get her asthma under control. I've heard about this smart therapy. Should we start it? I'll speak on the you know, the kids that are under 12. So I think we have to look at those trials that I discussed earlier in the part one, uh, the Sigma one and Sigma two, they excluded those children that were 11 and under. So it's really hard to extrapolate the information just because we don't have the full on evidence uh, as we do with those 12 years and above. So I would say not necessarily as far as going forward with smart therapy in the 11 and under age group, that's more so guideline directed for 12 and above. And unfortunately, this is Megan, we, we really don't have the data with pregnancy either. We're really balancing that risk versus benefit. We don't want an exacerbation. So we wouldn't want to decrease therapy, especially when somebody is pregnant. So this falls under that under 12 that we just don't have that data and we don't want to pose a risk for patients, especially when they're pregnant. But I think that's a great question, Amber, as well. Have you noticed anything in your population where you see different? No, so I, I completely agree. We actually just recently had a pregnant patient, which is why I bring this up. And she was on smart therapy prior to pregnancy, but the team, now that she was pregnant, decided that it wasn't appropriate to keep exposing her to that inhaled corticosteroid and really wanted to make sure that she had a rescue that would be good in case she got in trouble. So the the process or the plan that we implemented there was that she stopped smart therapy while pregnant and we actually put her on max dose. It was Advair, so the famotidol, salmeterol max dose, and then she had an albuterol rescue as well as an albuterol nebulizer solution at home. And I think it was completely based on what you guys are talking about, that there just wasn't really data and that risk versus benefit, it's way more important that we protect the patient from having an exacerbation. Thanks guys. All right, well, we will step into case number three. So our next case here, we have a 35-year-old female with worsening moderate asthma. She is on a max dose of our ICS LABA inhaler. And the provider tells you that they are considering maintenance oral steroids just because she has required oral steroids three times in the past six months and has a history of requiring steroids five to six times per year. So Megan and Amber Lene, can you walk us through some of the important considerations for this patient and what pathway uh, you might pursue to get this patient's asthma under control? Absolutely, Ben, thank you again. Amber, I can take the first low hanging fruit if that's okay. This seems to me, so the patient's probably at this point in later steps or severe asthma where we're looking at step four, step five. Um, I, this is, I know we're listening or having pharmacists mainly listen in, but I would double check a couple of things. Number one is the patient using the inhaler correctly. That seems to always fall through with asthma. And if potentially the provider's not assessing, that's a key thing to think about. Is the patient utilizing it appropriately as prescribed instead of maybe twice a day, they're using it once a day and making sure we've optimized that. If everything is aligned, everything is being done perfectly, we're administering as appropriate, no misdoses. This is a great case where we're adding on a llama specifically where I would be saying spariva. It's going to give additional benefit to the inhaled corticosteroid and the lava combination without trying to go to a specialist consult. So something that could stay within a primary care internal medicine office. This might also, if there's some allergy component where you're adding Montelukast 
or singular. And we talked about that concern for the black box warning, making sure that we counsel on suicidal ideation. So that really are the two things that in my realm of family medicine that I'm thinking about. Amber, you're a little bit more specialized. What, what are some of the things you're thinking about though? Yeah, I think this is a really great discussion point for us as ambulatory care pharmacists and, and community pharmacists that sometimes these patients actually fall through the cracks. You know, Megan, you're right. A lot of times they will be referred on, but oftentimes these may actually be caught by a community pharmacist who sees that the patient's refilling their albuterol consistently or even inpatient pharmacists who see these patients are bouncing because they're getting so many exacerbations or warranting so much oral corticosteroids. I think the key factor here is, is that although you may not be treating these patients, catching them is really important. Need to understand how to catch them. So looking for that need for oral corticosteroid is so critical. If you have a patient that's requiring multiple bursts or even requiring a low dose maintenance, that's telling you that they're not well controlled and it's likely pushing them towards a severe phenotype, whether that's inflammation or not, you have to be able to assess that and not you specifically, but it needs to be assessed by a specialist. I think the other thing that you really want to make sure that you kind of have in the back of your mind that will help the specialist and the patient is, are there some tests or things that you can recommend be ordered or history that you can gather so that the team can easily work these patients up? So there are some pertinent comorbidities that we would look at before we would start monoclonal antibodies. So things such as atopic dermatitis, does that patient have that history? Do they have a history of rhinosinusitis or nasal polyps? Is it listed in the chart? If not asking the patient so that we can utilize those things to then dictate which monoclonal antibody we might use first. We also want to make sure we have baseline labs and we need to get those labs on the highest dose of inhaled corticosteroid, but the lowest dose of maintenance oral corticosteroids. And so this is something that happens with family medicine all the time. They'll send a specialist patient, but the patient is on 20 milligrams of prednisone a day or has been on burst. And so we can't get those labs, those baseline labs, which then help dictate therapy. So if you start to notice this, recommending that they get those labs done so that we have that baseline to work with is really important. And then after you kind of recognize those things, if you are in the realm of where you're going to be able to help influence this patient at all, I think after you first recognize that they may be a candidate for workup for severe asthma phenotype, the second thing is getting that information and then having a discussion with the patient of here's the steps of what's going to happen. You're probably going to be recommended to go on monoclonal antibody therapy. You're probably going to have to give yourself self-injections. And kind of similar to how we would with a diabetic, before we start insulin, we start that conversation early to get them more comfortable with the idea of, oh, I might have to give myself injections and how I would do that. I think those things are so critical and key to help set the stage so that when the patients do go to a specialist, they're primed and ready to be able to be treated the way they need to. And then on the flip side, when they come back to you, just being comfortable with asking, how are you doing on that therapy? Do you have any questions about your injection technique or the site? Are you having any reactions? And then being aware that there are substantial resources that can help you and the patient administer the medications and understand what's going on with their, with their therapy. Amber, can I ask a question of you too? You know, I, I can't say that within my practice, if 
I don't feel like we're using a lot of oral corticosteroids as baseline or maintenance therapy. And you brought that up. And I think that's an interesting point as we think of individuals that aren't dealing with the severe asthma. In a hypothetical situation, if somebody was using baseline oral corticosteroids to manage, is there a certain dose that you need to get down to to get the, the appropriate labs? Or can you comment on that? So when you look at the guidelines, the guidelines actually say the lowest tolerated dose, but that's kind of subjective. In our clinic, we do everything we can to get them on less than five milligrams a day because we know anything greater than five milligrams a day is really going to substantially elevate IgE levels. It can affect eosinophils depending on how the patient individually responds. The other thing is it influences other labs or pulmonary function tests that we would get. And so to really get clear understanding of what's going on, we either have to wash them out or we drop them down to as low as we possibly can without triggering a full-blown exacerbation. And our goal in clinic is anything less than five milligrams a day. Some of my providers will even push that and say, no, I want it to be less than 2.5 milligrams per day. It's not clear in the literature what the target should be, but we just know that whatever we can get them to the lowest tolerated dose is going to help. I think it's really important to understand that oral corticosteroids affect those clinical biomarkers that we use. In addition, it may, and I'm going to kind of steal some of Michelle's glory here. She's going to talk about this hopefully a little bit later, but it may also prevent our ability to get these drugs covered because these drugs oftentimes require certain levels to be able to be started. We also have some that are based on weight. And so, you know, if you have an inaccurate weight, then they may decline approval of the drug. Or if the IgE levels are too high, they're going to say, oh, the patient doesn't warrant therapy. And so then that just requires a lot of back and forth with insurance companies to get these approved because you don't have the level that has been set to get that drug approved for the patient. Well, thank you guys both for having some great comments on this patient case. And then again, kind of wrapping up how an ambulatory care pharmacist and that family medicine or primary care space can really help that transition if a patient is needing to go to a specialist. So that was some great insight. So we have our final case here, and we have an 83-year-old patient who has had trouble using his Spiriva effectively. He has a severe airflow limitation and notices powder left in his hand inhaler after inspiration. So Michelle, what options do we have for this particular patient? Thanks, Ben. So for this patient, this is someone I would want to try to transition from using the handy inhaler device to the Spiriva Respimat device or a nebulizer if possible. The patient isn't able to generate enough force to inhale the full dose of the powder from the Spiriva capsule. So we need a drug delivery system that doesn't require such a forceful inspiration. So the Respimat or a nebulizer would be good options. A possible downside, like we talked a little bit about earlier, is the insurance formularies. You know, if they only cover the handy inhaler, but not the Respimat. What are we going to do from there? So we could try a prior authorization and we could, you know, really go into detail explaining to the insurance company why this is a more appropriate and going to be a more beneficial option for the patient. For this case, we have an older patient, 83 years old, likely on Medicare. So if a patient has Medicare, then we can work with Medicare Part B because they typically cover a nebulizer device and the nebulizer solutions. So that may be a better option for this particular patient. 
at the end of the day, it's really important to work together with the doctor and the insurance company to find a solution that will work for the patient. But it can be kind of tricky when navigating those third party uh, plan formularies and their requirements. Yeah, I definitely think that highlights on, you know, it's only as good if it's being used. So if, if a patient isn't being able to use a dry powder inhaler for, you know, their airflow limitations, then us pharmacists in the ambulatory care setting should try to go through all the hoops that we can, whether that's working with Medicare Part B, going through prior authorizations, those kinds of things, just to make sure that patient has access. And Michelle, I was going to add, this is Megan again. I I think the other thing that's somewhat interesting that's novel that uh, is there is what's called an in-check dial. And because Michelle, you brought up such a great point about is somebody able to get an appropriate and accurate inspiration and in to get that medication. And I find that pretty common in my practice, both I know we're focusing on asthma, but with COPD as well. This is, if somebody's not seen this, it almost looks like an inhaler itself. It's an in inspiratory device that it actually measures the amount of inspiration you can get. And it does show similar then based upon the inhaler that they have, if they are adequate enough to get that inspiration. It's really, really fascinating. I'm not seeing a lot of practices use it. I myself um, am currently asking for it. And any other thoughts on that? Megan, I'm totally like mad crushing on you right now because I actually have a full practice where we use the in-check dial or we use the Vitalograph aerosol inhalation monitor. And we actually do testing to determine whether or not patients have the inspiratory effort to be able to use those inhalers. I firmly believe after doing this for five years that you cannot just look at a patient and say, oh, they're going to be able to use their inhalers because the conditions of lungs, you know, I have a cold right now. And I can tell you that if I tried to take a deep puff off a dry powdered inhaler, it's not going to happen. I would be in a full-blown coughing fit. And the amount of drug that would deposit in my lungs is probably non-existent. I firmly believe that as pharmacists that we should be able to find ways to do that. I'm so excited that you're trying to get one. One of the things I love about the in-check dial as opposed to the Vitalograph is it is a little bit cheaper and it's a lot easier to use in terms of getting a patient to demonstrate it. It's also got really nice settings that will allow you to change the different devices. So you can really customize very well what a device what device a patient should use. Whereas with the Vitalograph, you're really only able to say, can they use an MDI meter dose inhaler, a dry powdered inhaler DPI, or a meter dose inhaler with a spacer. So yeah, I think it's really important that we be able to test those. And you know that might be something everybody in a family medicine, internal medicine, community pharmacy can do, but definitely something that we should encourage and explain to our practitioners that are in more of a specialty realm. Awesome. Uh, well, I want to thank the panelists for giving us insightful responses to these patient cases and touching on those major concepts that we introduced in part one of this podcast. So we're all really excited to see, you know, what new literature is going to be coming out and how this data may shift further asthma management. Well, if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out the ASHP Ambulatory Care Resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Ambulatory Care Career Tool, certification resources, rotation guides, guidelines, policies, and information on billing and reimbursement. Be sure also to become a member of the section of Ambulatory Care Practitioners Connect community, where you can exchange ideas and ask questions from your peers. 
Thanks again for tuning into this session and join us here every Thursday where we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.